Hi everyone, this is Brant Van Rokel, lead pastor of Christ City Kitsilano, and I want to let you know about a couple of things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us at 5th Avenue Cinema on Burrard Street at 9.30 a.m. We meet every Sunday morning for worship, word, and sacrament, and we'd love for you to join us there. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church Kitsilano is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to hear more about what God has called us to here in Kitsilano, then please reach out to me at brant at christcitychurch.ca or you can visit christcitychurch.ca slash Kitsilano. The scripture reading today is taken from John chapter 1, verse 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came, to, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who, have, who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who was born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of, of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of his, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This, is, this was he of whom I sent. He who comes after me, me ranks before me, before he was before me, because he was before me. For, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is the Father's side. He has made, it, made him known. This is the word of the God. You may be seated. And as you're seated, let me pray for us. Uh, God, we come to you this morning. We come uh, to your word and we come uh, knowing that um, this Sunday special, the beginning of Advent, and we come asking your blessing. Lord, would you help us to see the glory of who Jesus in the manger is. That we would behold his awesome birth and the splendor of who he is, not just as a baby, but as God come to save us. God, I ask that you would open our eyes to see just wonderful and marvelous things in your word and to have heart strengthened to worship and to believe. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've said uh, numerous times already, today is the first day of Advent uh, in the Christian calendar. And that means, by the way, that if you're in the debates about when to start playing Christmas music, today's the day. Actually, it's in the reverse. Uh, today's the day if you've not been playing Christmas music already, that if you don't play Christmas music, something's wrong with you. You got to play Advent Christmas music starting now. 
But Advent is, is a word, it just means arrival. It means arrival. And Advent is a time that for the last 1,600 or so years, the Church of Jesus Christ has celebrated Jesus' arrival on earth. That God became flesh. That God was born as our Savior. And every year for Advent, we always stop what we're preaching through as a church and we begin a four-week Advent series just to dive deep into the mystery and the glory of Jesus' first coming as we anticipate his second coming. We're going to do that this year by looking at the Gospel of John, a couple select passages through the Gospel of John. And if you aren't familiar, by the way, uh, there are four Gospels in the Bible in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, where we find the stories about Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. And John's a little different in his story about Jesus. Because in his introduction, which we've just read, John didn't write, I think you noticed this probably, he didn't say anything about a manger. He didn't say anything about shepherds, about angels singing Gloria. He didn't say anything about wise men. It's all absent from John's Christmas story, John's introduction. Instead, we have a pretty weighty, heavy, but glorious exaltation in who Jesus is as God become human. God has become human as our Savior. See, John starts his gospel writing with the boldest colors on the biggest canvas he can think of. All to show us that when we look at Jesus in the manger, we aren't just looking at a baby. We are looking at the greatest of all miracles. The miracle that the creator of all was 2,000 years ago born as part of his creation. The miracle that God became a man to lift humanity to heaven. The miracle that God has done all of this because he loves us. Because he loves you. John wrote his introduction this way for a reason. Straight dive deep into the mystery of Christmas and he wrote it to give us hope Because Christ City, we are a people who need hope. I don't know if you've noticed, but life's hard. It's full of darkness and it's full of incredible suffering. You're probably going through something right now. And you know that we are in need of hope. But the light has come. Advent and Christmas mean that the light has come, that hope has dawned. This morning, we're going to look at John's words in his introduction to learn three profound things about Jesus, all to have hope, all to learn what God has done to come to save us, a people who dwell in the land of great darkness. See, Jesus has come not just as a baby in the manger, but here's our three points, as the God of creation, as the God of of a new creation, as a God of revelation. And even if you don't follow what all that means, I'll unpack it for you as you look through this text. So we'll start with the God of creation, looking at John chapter 1, verse 1. 
And John writes, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word that we all know because we've read the whole text, uh, that is Jesus. The word who John identifies as Jesus. But what he wants us to see by beginning his gospel with those words in the beginning is that Jesus' arrival isn't just a story. It's the story. See, if I began this sermon with the words, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, what story would come to your mind? And if I began this sermon with the story or with the words, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, what story would you think of? See, there are some words that when you say them are so meaningful, so iconic and weighty that just referencing them draws the listener back to a different story. And John has begun his gospel with the words, in the beginning, because they are about as explicit a reference as you can make to the beginning of the best-selling book of all time, the Bible. And when you open the first page of the Bible and you look at the first words that the Bible has written in them, it begins with, the, with these words in Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so reality begins. So the greatest story that's ever been told starts. Yahweh, the personal covenantal God of the Bible, he creates all things in the beginning. Yahweh, the glorious creator God, gives fullness of life and flourishing for all of his creation. Yahweh creates all that exists and he doesn't do it by creating from some pre-existent eternal matter. He does it by creating out of nothing with his words. The oceans teem with fish. The jungles burst with life. All because of Yahweh's words in the beginning. Overflowing words full of love, full of blessing, full of life. In response to this creator, God, the Bible in its own poetry says that the whole world is alive and responding and rejoicing. In the Psalms, the psalm says, the psalmist says that the trees of the field are clapping their hands before this God. The Psalms, they have a summoning of all the creation, everything that has breath, come worship and rejoice in the bounty and the abundance and the goodness of this creator God. And in John 1 verse 1, John says the word of this God who is God, the word that made everything is Jesus. Look again at John 1 verses 1 to 4. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. He's trying to be exhaustive. You see that? He's Yahweh, the 
creator of all, and in him was life. And the life was the light of men. Now, I remember as a kid um, making big claims about my dad in the presence of other kids. You know what I'm talking about? My dad's so strong, he can lift like three of us kids on his shoulders. Oh, yeah, well, my dad's so strong, he can bend steel with his bare hands. And and you knew that the game worked, that you you couldn't accelerate to the very end of the best things that you could say because that would be giving it away too early, right? There's no game, there's no competition. My dad's infinity strong. Well, the game's over, man. You ruined it. But here, in John's first sentence, he's already said the biggest thing he can say about Jesus. The biggest, greatest thing that he could say, he said. He's the creator of all things. This is who he is. But John's done that for a reason. He's done it to write the biggest exclamation point he can next to the glorious humility of Jesus' birth. A glorious humility that's been captured I think most beautifully, probably, in a sermon that was written by a man we call St. Augustine, Augustine of Hippo. This is an old quote. It's from 1,600 years ago. So you know a quote's good when it's been used for 1,600 years. But in this quote, St. Augustine, he, he talks about the glory of the Creator who was born as a baby. He says this, The maker of man became man that he, the ruler of the stars, might be nourished at the breast. That he, the bread, might be hungry. That he, the fountain, might thirst. That he, the light, might sleep. That he, the way, might be wearied by the journey. That he, the truth, might be accused by false witnesses. That he, the judge of the living and the dead, might be brought to trial by a mortal judge that he justice might be condemned by the unjust, that he discipline might be scourged with whips, that he the vine or the grape might be crowned with thorns, that he the foundation might be suspended upon a cross, that courage might be weakened, that security might be wounded, and that life might die. All for his love, for his creation. All to save us. So I I just want to encourage you, right now in your mind's eye, look again at Jesus in the manger. What do you see? Was there ever a greater ruler who made himself lower and love to save us. And there's a lot of stories in human history about people ascending to something greater than themselves. There's a lot of rigs to riches stories. Um, Dickens writes some of my favorite rigs to riches stories. There's a lot of humanity to deity ascension stories. But the human being who finds enlightenment essentially becomes a God who climbs up to the heavens. But the Christmas story is the opposite. 
It's a love story of infinite God for his creatures bending low. Lower and lower and lower to the point of a human death to rescue pitiable, fallen, broken people like you and me and the fullness of our own suffering in this sinful and broken world. See, God became human to raise humanity to God. See, at Jesus' birth, Matthew and Luke, marveling at these truths, they wrote that the angels sang. They wrote that the shepherds worshipped, that the wise men brought gifts. And every human being in all creation, and creation itself, to be clear, should have come and bowed down and worshipped at the feet of Jesus at his birth. But that's not what happened. And in fact, as Jesus grew, he was rejected. I want you to turn with me now to our second point of verses 9 to 11 to see not just that Jesus is the creator, but that he alone, by the very fact of his rejection, has become the new creator of all things, the God of new creation. Look at verse 9 with me. The true light, John writes, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And light, of course, you know, we, we know this even in our cultural imagination. It represents instruction, truth, wisdom, enlightenment. You know, the, the knowledge of how to live life well in the best ways. And the light itself, the light incarnate, which gives light to everyone, it was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So surprising. He came to his own And his own people did not receive him. Though the world itself was made through Jesus, the world didn't recognize Jesus when he came. I think when we we picture Jesus in our minds, we often picture Jesus, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in those medieval pictures of Jesus, right? With the halo glowing around his head. Or they go, this is Jesus. He just walked around with a halo. That's what Jesus did on planet Earth. And if that's the case, then we'd wonder, If that's who he is, then who on earth could have missed him? Walking around with this glowing light around his head. It's like, Jesus, can you turn the lights off? I would, but I'm sorry. I am the light. Right? But it didn't happen like that. See, Jesus had no halo. And in fact, Jesus didn't come, though he was God, in glory at all. It's not what you'd expect. Because in a story where you know it's about God becoming human, you'd expect him to exalt himself and to either invite or even to compel the whole created world to worship him. But scripture continually emphasizes the birth of Jesus and his life on planet earth was the opposite. That Jesus emptied himself of his glory. That he came with a hidden glory. Philippians chapter 2 verses 6 to 7, one of the key texts that talks about this, written by the Apostle Paul, says that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself. 
And the understanding is he emptied himself of all the glory and the majesty and the worship that was due to God. And he took the form of a servant and he was born in the likeness of men. And there's a prophecy about Jesus before he came from Isaiah 53. And he goes on and he says something even more. He says that there was nothing even about Jesus that was humanly attractive. He emptied himself so much. So by the way, we've got to recast all of the Jesus kind of movies. Right? We always find some heroic figure. Right? Often of the wrong ethnicity. Uh, but we've got to recast them because Isaiah 53, 12, or verse 2 says, uh, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. Think about that. You've got the wrong picture of Jesus if you picture the long flowing hair (laughs) and the face that could be on the cover of Time magazine. (laughs) And he did it for a reason. Because God knows better than anyone how obsessed human beings are with the wrong things. We are obsessed Christ city with the wrong things. We look at the external, but God looks at the heart. We love power. We love pride. We love strength. We love display of outward beauty. And we are so slow to love and adore the things that are truly praiseworthy, the pure and the righteous and inward goodness of self-giving love. And so Jesus came, but he came with his glory hidden in weakness and humility and love. My favorite piece of poetry that that talks about this is from the famous hymn, Hark the Herald Angels. You guys know Hark the Herald Angels? Don't turn it off when it comes on. Listen to the words. It has this line, just an incredible line. It says, veiled in flesh the Godhead see." Hidden. Hidden. Look at Jesus. He's God. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate. That just means made flesh. The incarnate deity. Please, as a man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Jesus, and Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus God with us. But it is in the very fact, and for the very reason that that his glory was hidden, I think that that when we read the Gospels, we see that sinful humanity who looks on the wrong things and expects the wrong things, is for that hidden glory that they rejected Jesus, that despised him in his weakness. Look at verse 11. It says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The light has come, He's not recognized. God incarnate comes to his people. They don't receive him. They reject him. And even as Jesus dies on the cross later in the gospel story, we learn that even his closest friends were not there at the cross with him. Because they did not have a category for a crucified Christ, for a murdered Messiah. Even they were offended by his weakness. And yet, This hiddenness was all part of God's plan. Because God did not come to save the world through glory and strength, but through weakness. To save the world by giving himself to us so completely in love that we could be saved because he was killed. 
See, God knew something that we often don't consider. He knows that only a human can pay the price of human sin. Only a human can bear the penalty we deserve for our sin before a holy God. So either every human must die or the perfect human must be born. The perfect human born is our substitute. One whose single death was so valuable it could pay the price of all of our sin. But one also who, because he was God, Jesus is fully God, he's fully man. One also who is fully God, and because he is God, that death could never hold him. And death didn't hold Jesus. Three days later, Jesus was resurrected from death, conquering Satan and sin and death for forever. And 40 days later, he ascended into heaven as a human being, forever uniting humanity with God. Think about this. If you think about Jesus in some platonic state, just spiritual up in heaven, that's the wrong view of Jesus. There is a human being at the right hand of God interceding for his saints. Jesus Christ resurrected in glory. And because Jesus has now forever united humanity with divinity. From heaven, he has poured out his Holy Spirit upon his church so that we too can be united to God. So that we too can be recreated in Jesus. Adopted as the children of God with a new family as new creatures. Look again at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, Jesus gave the right to become children of God. Children who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but born, and we can insert, by a miracle of God, united with Jesus. The Gospel of John talks a lot about two different births. A first birth and a second birth. We're going to look more at this next week, but we're going to spill the beans now already because it's important for this text. And the idea is that at our first birth, we are born as human beings, descendants of human beings, and inheriting the sinfulness of our parents who are human beings, stretching all the way back to Adam and Eve. And as human beings, because of our birth into the human race, we share a family resemblance. You guys know what family resemblance is? Do you have siblings, anybody? When your sibling walks into a room and introduces themselves, do people get confused or, or, or clarified? Like, oh, I see the resemblance. I know who you are because I've met your other sibling, right? There's a family resemblance that we bear as well as human beings, but it's a family resemblance of sin. And wherever we've gone as human beings and whenever we've multiplied on the earth, we've spread our family resemblance, our greed and our lust our jealousy and our strife, our bitterness and our lies and our deceit, our hatred and our slander and our gossip, our manipulation, our desire to control things for ourselves, our suspicion, our selfishness, our mean-spiritedness. And we've brought hurt and destruction and corruption wherever we've gone. Like, what city have we not spoiled? What country have we not polluted? But at our second birth, 
the good news of the gospel is that Jesus recreates humanity in his own image. And he does it by making us children of God. Look at verse 12 to 13 again. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. See, our problem in Christ City is that in our sin, we desperately need to be recreated and given a new family. We need a new family resemblance. And in Jesus Christ, we have it. The perfect human, united to God, who adopts us into the family of God so that no longer are we like Adam and Eve in their sin, but instead now we are being recreated in the image of Jesus Christ in his righteousness and his goodness and his love. This is the good news of the gospel. See, Romans 8 Verse 29 talks about it this way. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed, that means made like or recreated in, the image of his Son, Jesus. In order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is inclusive language referring to men and women all together adopted and changed and given a new family in Jesus. See, Jesus is the Son of God who's become a human being so that human beings can be recreated as the children of God. So I want you to, to stop. I know that's a lot. and John's got a lot of dense stuff. We could go on even deeper and longer. But look again with these things in mind at the baby in the manger. I think this is, this is creator, creator born as a baby, but not just the creator. This is the new creator born as a baby. Because he is the God of new creation, there's hope for us. Because we can be made new too. There's hope that life can begin to fill this world of death. A life that begins with the transformation of of human hearts as we're brought into relationship with God but a life that is so powerful and so unstoppable that it will continue until the remaking of heaven and earth, to the resurrection of the dead, to the day when we stand full in the presence of God and he wipes away the tears from our eyes and all is made right. Jesus is the God of the new creation. So I want to encourage you, if, if you've not come to this Jesus and asked to be part of this new creation, don't wait. Today's the day. Don't harden your hearts. Look to him. Confess your sin. Call on him to save you. And he will. You can be confident that he will. You can be confident because the baby in the manger is the one who shows us that God is a God of love whose very heart is to save people like you and me. So look at our third point then. and The God of revelation. Jesus who reveals God to us in verses 14 to 18. There we read these words. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
I want to just stop there. It's just this could be the whole sermon. <laughs> and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him. That's John the Baptist. And he cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Christ City, here's a question. How can you know God? It's a question, if you don't know, that's troubled philosophers and theologians for millennia. Because the thought of, of who God is is that, that this is a God who's so exalted over us who is outside of his creation, who created his creation separate from him. And there's no way then for us to ascend to him, to comprehend him, if it depends upon us to know him. We can't get to him. You can't think yourself to God. You can't reach him through ancient or modern or eastern or western or northern or southern spiritual practices. None of them are good enough. You can't get to him. You can't do enough good to ascend to him morally to be in relationship with him. To deeply have relationship with God, then we are utterly dependent upon God to reveal himself to us. And he has. God has come to us. See, he's a God of relationship. He's a God of words. And from the very beginning, he has spoken to us through his prophets and in his recorded words in the Bible. The author of the book of Hebrews, later in the Bible, he says this, he says, long ago at many times and in many different ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He's talked to us. He's revealing himself to us all the time. Praise God. That's the kind of God he is. But all that revelation of himself, all those words, though they're gloriously good and gracious and kind and full of truth, are incomplete. They're incomplete. When I was dating my wife, Heather, there's a time when, when she uh, lived in Brazil for three months, I think, um, in the Amazon. <laughs> So she's a long ways away from regular ways of communication. And we communicated only via email and that not very often, uh, you know, when the internet connection was working in these things. And when we'd write, we'd, we'd pour out our hearts on the page, you know, these long, long letters. I was reading some of them the other day because I had a couple saved. Man, they're descriptive. I never write like that anymore. I got to go back there. Maybe it would help my preaching or something. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but we're pouring out our hearts to one another on the written page. But even that, as good as it was, I mean, it didn't replace Heather. I, I, I longed for her to be with me. For her person to be there. To see her, to touch her, to know her, to be with her in an intimacy of relationship. And just like the written word will never satisfy the relationships we're made for as human beings, so the God who made us in his image has always longed for a richer relationship with us than words alone can accomplish. And in verse 14, we read that he's come to us. The word 
became flesh and dwelt among us. See, our creator didn't stay at a distance. He lowered himself to show himself to us in a way that we could comprehend so we could see him with our eyes, touch him with our hands, embrace him with our arms so we can know him and so we can trust him. So what God's done in Jesus, it, it reminds me a little bit of what it's like to talk to children. See, to talk to kids, to connect with kids, you got to do something. You, you can't just talk to them as an adult down to the little kid on the floor. You got to get on your knees. Maybe even got to lie down next to them. To see them look in their eyes, to, to enter into their conversation in the way that they communicate, not in the way that, that you do. To, to take them by the hand and, and to know them. To make yourself known to them. But Christ City, this is what God has done for us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John even goes further, and in verse 18 he says that no one's ever seen God. He says the only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known He's explained him to us. Jesus alone is capable of that task because Jesus is God the Son. If you don't know, the Bible teaches a triune God, one single God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, forever existing in a relationship of love. And Jesus the Son is the one who's come to us, who in verse 18 says, is at the Father's side. And in Greek, that's literally a description of an impression in the Father's chest. It's just metaphorical language, just to uh, try to communicate something to us. But it wants us to picture that out of the very heart of God, Jesus has come forth to be born in flesh, to reveal the heart of God. To show us the fullness of who God is in his love and his goodness and his righteous character. And Jesus has done all of this. <laughs> he has shown us these things because when we look at Jesus in the manger, what do we learn? We learn in a way that nothing else can even come close to showing us that our God is a humble God. That our God is a God of love who has created us who teaches us what is good and right in this world, not out of malice or arbitrary, hurtful spirit, because he longs for our blessing, because he longs to give us fullness of life. We look at Jesus, we learn that he is a God who's not quick to punish or destroy us in our sin, but one who is willing to die in our place and for our sin so that we could be forgiven. So we could be raised with Jesus from death itself, ascend with him into heaven, into the hollow of the Father's heart, forever united with him as the children of God. And this is a mystery of Christmas. The glory of our Savior Jesus born in the manger. To spend time thinking about Jesus at Christmas is to spend time looking grace full in the face. And what grace is, is a gift. A gift given 
to people regardless of their merit or deserving. A lavish abundance poured out upon someone in generosity. In Christ's city, this is who Jesus is. Jesus in the manger is gift. He is grace. The lavish generosity of God poured out for the undeserving. Just as John wrote in verse 16, for from Jesus' fullness we have all received grace upon grace. From the fullness of who he is as creator and as new creator and as reviewer. But in his fullness, there is a challenge. And I want to leave you with this challenge. Because if this is who Jesus is, then there isn't any other. Because he isn't a God, but the God. He's not a Savior, but the Savior. He's not a new start for humanity, among other new starts that have been tried. He is the only new creation for humanity. See, Christmas is beautiful, but Christmas is confrontational. And I want you to know that and to wrestle with that as we conclude. I want to ask you the question, how then will you respond to Jesus? Will you join the multitudes of every tribe and nation and tongue on earth who have received life in Jesus and worship him? Or will you reject him and remain in death? Today is a day of salvation and we can't be certain we have tomorrow to come to him now before it's too late. Let's pray. God, we come to you and we come awed by your love, your humility, your goodness. God, would you cause this season, these four weeks to be a time of wrestling with who you are as our Savior. As God become human for our salvation. Lord, would you fan into flames our worship and our obedience and our service of you? Lord, for those that do not yet know you personally as their Savior, would you cause them in this season to, to wrestle in order to be moved towards belief and trust to be saved by Jesus? Lord, would you help us? Would you help us now to respond to you in worship? In Jesus' name, amen.